Good morning. A few weeks ago, I made reference to Alexander the Great and the encounter that he was said to have had with a guard who was on guard duty, but actually, while on duty, he fell asleep. And Alexander, as he came upon him, asked him, Soldier, what's your name? And the soldier replied rather sheepishly several times, and his comment, Alexander, sir. And finally, Alexander the Great looked at him and said to him, Soldier, either change your name or change your conduct. Because as Alexander was pointing out, there was a massive disconnect between the name he was given and the life he actually was living. And where we were last week as we got into the pages of Ephesians is Paul is saying the very same thing. He's saying there's a disconnect that you're living with, that as a people that the anger held on to, the bitterness that's kept alive, the slander that's spoken, the payback that's pursued, they're disconnects. There's not the way you're to live. And most of these things just stemming from the, the attitudes that, that we hold on and the offenses that we keep alive. And Paul's warning to that through uh, God is that get rid of the unwholesome. Because grace doesn't hold on to these things. It's, it's a disconnect from what, how God wants you to live. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And in its place, take on and start living out the new way of living, a living yielded to Christ, not yielded to circumstance. And now as we come to these pages of chapter 5 that Paul speaks, he, he takes us into actually even a deeper area of disconnect. And a disconnect that is naming the name of Christ, but living something very different and in ways that are very significant. Not just things that were Uh, coming out of attitude, that we allow attitudes to grow, that we give room for and give a home to, but to the actions that we actually allow to grow out of these things. But before weighing in on these, Paul makes very certain that he needs to set the stage, and he does in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He's about to say the things that you need to change and understand about your life, but know this, you need to understand first the identity of who you are and who you've been made to be. That you are, I am, in Christ, a loved child of God. And so because of that identity, live out that love. Understanding how that living is to look and and how that living is to act. And placed in that, he now comes zeroing in in a disconnect that is truly wreaking havoc. A disconnect that distorts and perverts as he gets into verse 3 and says, you, you go after pleasures that are represented as love, but, but they are far from it. And Paul starts zeroing in on sexual immorality and impurity because the culture into which he writes is obsessed with everything sex. It's sex with whomever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And to that, Paul's words, don't cheapen the treasure that you've been given. Don't destroy what's meant to give so much. Don't mess up what you have. 
Paul writing to us in the same way where our understanding of the treasures God gives us, the sexual gift, is defined in a culture that gives us what, what sex is through the internet and through cable and through Kama Sutra manuals. They have become our instruction manual about love and sex and relationship, trading real love, real fulfillment, for the emptiness and the illusion of anything goes and the, the freedom of techniques and behaviors that are filled with risk. And instead of God's truth, we run after the, the counterfeit. And the evidence of that is all around us. We have it through a survey that was done by Proven Men, which found that two-thirds of U.S. men view pornography at least monthly. And another survey which demonstrates that a third of young Christian men are addicted to porn and one-third of married Christian men will have an affair. And more recent studies have echoed either the same thing or they said the numbers actually are low. And though this is coming from the pen and the, the research of proven men, we also know that this is not an issue that is just reserved for men only. And so Paul speaks into this culture, our culture, where, where Christians either ignore or distort what God says about sex at the cost of broken lives and, and shattered homes. And while we buy in, looking on our broken children and broken marriages, broken homes, all too often with the church, remaining silent uh, when it comes to God's gift of the celebration of sex. And Sunday, sadly, may be the only time in which we don't learn about sex. It's impossible, though, to come in today's scripture without, in Ephesians 5, without considering, first and foremost, some of the things that God does say about sex. Because if we don't, we can easily be left with a sense that this is a place of prohibition or that Christians are inhibited when it comes to sex. Just stay away from things like that. It's very similar to what a, a theologian in the 12th century said this about sex. He said, when a married couple has sex, the Holy Spirit leaves the room, even if they do it without passion. <laughs> I mean, sadly, that marriage and sexual union should ever have passion in it, but, but that's what this view was. John Piper's obviously uh, gives a very different perspective because now we live in a very different reality of understanding sex. Piper says, it's risky to talk about the goodness of sex these days because ours is an age of sexual hyperbole. Never before in history has the goddess of sex offered so much with so little to give. So as before we get into Ephesians 5, it begs the question, what does Scripture tell us about script, uh, sex? What does God say? First, that it was very good. And God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good, as we're told in Genesis 1.31. The creation of light was good. The creation of animals was good. However, when God created man and woman, Naked and unashamed, he says, it was very good. When God declared that the two shall become one flesh, it was very good. But from the beginning, the two becoming flesh was only to be enjoyed in the covenant relationship of marriage. 
told in Genesis again, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the f- women, the wife, were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. And Jesus later will affirm this very good view of sex and sexual celebration within God's covenantal relationship of marriage. And the point of that of this is this. Sex was God's idea. He invented it. He holds the patent to the act. He drew up the blueprints of how our bodies are to respond, the intensity, the drive, and the the pleasure of the act. They were built-in pleasures for sexual joy. His purpose? Sure, reproduction, but far more than that. His design. His creation for men and women to respond as they do, not to use and exploit, but to celebrate and to grow into intimacy. Intimacy in safety and trust. Intimacy that was his purpose and his design, his very good. The two becoming one physically, yes, but but far more than that, becoming one emotionally, relationally, spiritually. There are our wants and our needs not centered on I, but transferred to center on we. First Corinthians Chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, make it very clear. A me-centered sexual orientation and pursuit, it damages relationships. It leaves us susceptible to Satan's attacks. And several places in Scripture are explicitly sexual. There's Proverbs 5, verses 15 and then 18 and 19. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Make your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you be captivated by her love. And while we may not get the imagery, there is no doubt God is very clear. Sexual love, freely expressed, freely enjoyed within God's design of marriage is his purpose, and it's his blessing. Or we could take the book of uh, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And though some commentators want to make it as a metaphor for his relationship with his church, it's undeniable that the book is unmistakably a description of uninhibited sexual love. And that's obvious even from the beginning words of verse 2. It talks about and it says, Kiss me again and again for your love is sweeter than wine. The, The Hebrew literally gives the idea that smother me with kisses. It has to be one of the most memorable opening lines in all of Scripture. And the love referred to is placed in the whole context of the caress of lovemaking and uh, great intimacy. Or we can get it in, in verse, beginning in verse 9 in chapter 1. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to the, one of the chariots of Pharaoh. And, and the context is this, is... is Uh, When the woman speaking is downgrading her physical beauty, he disagrees and says, you're like a mare, a female horse in Pharaoh's cavalry. Well, here's the reality. See, there were no mares in Pharaoh's cavalry because if you had the presence of a female amongst the stallions, the stallions would go wild in sexual excitement. So 
So her belief, we are told here, is that she may think she's unattractive. But you're like, your attractiveness is like being released as a mare into a group of stallions. You're beautiful. You're exciting. We get it later in uh, chapter 7 of verse, uh, uh, verses 1 to 9. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is delicious as a goblet filled with wine. Your belly is lovely like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is as stately as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like sparkling pools in Heshbon by the gate of Batharabin. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon. Don't use that, husbands, on your wives. Uh, a king is held in captive of your queenly tresses oh how delightful you are my beloved how pleasant for utter delight you are tall and slim like a palm tree and your breasts are like clusters of dates i said i will climb up into the palm tree and take hold of its branches now may your breasts be like grape clusters and the scent of your breath like apples may your kisses be as exciting as the best wine smooth and sweet flowing gently over lips and and teeth sexual and god's not afraid to talk that way because it was his gift, his design. And traditionally, the Song of Solomon was one of the five books that the Jewish people read during their holy days and the religious festivals. Yeah, yeah, this book in that time, because to the Jews, the connect was natural. God was to be worshipped for all of his gifts, and chief among them was one of his great gifts of sex. Pulling back for a second, that, that is a huge disconnect for how many in the outside world looking in at Christians would ever view Christians viewing sex. And quite frankly, it's, it's also a huge disconnect for many who within the church view sex. Their experience has been more defined by prohibitions and absence of blessings, like warnings about fire that is going to destroy. And God said, no, no. Fire used when it's used according to its intended purpose brings warmth and brings light and brings purity. It, it purifies. It, yes, it has the capacity to destroy, but worked used rightly, it, it's a gift. Which brings us back to the words of Ephesians. Because when God spoke the words in the New Testament, he knew what those living in Ephesus were like in the culture in which they lived. The culture promoted adultery and sexual uh, premarital sex, sex with children and orgies and temple prostitution. That is the way you went to the temple and you worshipped your God. You were to do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want. And in the same way, God knew that the definers of sex in our culture would be the internet providers who would be what they would be streaming and the sexologists and what they would be prescribing and what the in sexual uh, entertainment industry would be showing. He also knew that the idol of sex in man's sin and brokenness would would be given center stage emphasis and priority. And knowing all that, God speaks again and again about sex because he wanted them to know what this gift was through the truth of its designer. And yet, what's so sad 
is we are told often from the sexual deceiver what sex is, rather than God, what the God designer says. And in that deceit, we are told the things that God wants to keep away from us, the, the pleasures that are to be avoided and denied, denying the, accept, uh, the excitement, denying what the designer has said is, it's my good gift. It's my very good gift. But what we fail to ask is this. Why would he do that? Why would he create the very good with everything that he's built in and then that design say, don't go near, don't enjoy? And the point is, he doesn't say don't enjoy. He says, don't destroy. Don't misuse. Instead, use according to the maker's instruction. But we think we know better. And so we settle for the deceiver's view, where spouses cheat and couples sin, when people are deceived by porn, when people prematurely tear open a present that's meant for the, for the wedding night, when people engage in emotional adultery, their body present and their, their imaginations and fantasies in somewhere else. God's very good thrown into the gutter, treated as if it is something of little value. His gift devalued and discarded, misused and abused. And the result, people left in pain because of the deceiver's lie. With the result of children growing up a world where fathers are, are never known and where people run from relationship to relationship, hoping that sometime, maybe this time it'll be different. And that's why God takes us to Ephesians and says in verse 3, Don't let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you. The word used for immorality is the word pornania, and it speaks to all sexual behavior outside of marriage, outside of God's framework. And the word tends to focus on actions that are seen and done, the, the image on view, the affair stepped into, the, the porn sites visited, the opportunity you're about to step into, the promise you're about to accept, the whispers that you're ready to believe. And God's warning, get rid of it. Don't treat it lightly. Don't even name it among you. Act swiftly, act boldly, act decisively, and send these behaviors back to hell from where they came. The, the second word he uses is the, the word impurity, and re, impurity refers to something that's filthy from the inside out. It's the infection that surrounds a wound or, a, or refers to a decaying body. And that's exactly, exactly an, a very apt description of what happens to a society that gives itself over to immorality as the Greeks and the Romans had done. And, and this word speaks more, more to the condition that sets in when left untreated, that it surrounds begins to poison, and then it begins to spread. 
just like a virus with which we're dealing now. It, it spread just goes and seeps into all areas of life, the immorality. And the Christians in Ephesus knew what it meant to be living in the surround of sexual sin. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, dominated the city center, and sexual indulgence was the norm. And their society, in truth, was a rotting corpse. Not unlike ours, where impurity fills our minds with values and images contrary to, to God's design. A society where pictures come and, and images bombard and thoughts tempt. And the good news that we have is it's into that world of distortion that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into. And with it, he liberates from the bondage of chasing that which can never satisfy. Where he offers in the gospel the forgiveness of our sins and offers the giving of a brand new life. So while Paul talks about the immorality and the impurity, he then mentions a third, another word there, which is the word greed. And at first that seems like a disconnect. It seems to be a strange fit with immorality and impurity. But the truth is, greed is the fuel for immorality. Its commitment is to, to self-interest, what's in it for me. Because greed exploits and it steals, it elevates my interests over another's. And its preoccupation is to fill my bank account at the expense of another. And as verse 5 states, greed is idolatry that pushes God out of our lives. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that some of you listening this morning have been victimized by that greed. Others have used you to satisfy their wants and their desires. And some listening, even right now, may be presently using someone else to satisfy your greed. In some cases, the other not even knowing that they're being used. But you know. And the truth is, God knows. No matter how convincing your mask, how much you want to tell yourself something different, He knows. And believe it or not, the fact that God knows is actually good news because God wants to put an end to your greed and heal your selfish places, your broken places. He wants you and I to know that he died to fill our empty places and is waiting for, to forgive all who will come to him and repent. Not, not just about the sexual sin or, or this, but the place of our brokenness that God has said, you can't do life without me. And in that place, he gives us Christ in the death on the cross to say, I, I give you the offer of everlasting life from which he says, out of the innermost beings will spring rivers of living water. And that's what the cross was all about. Jesus inviting us to come and to be made new, to be given to the power to live life in a new way, not controlled by what we used to do or even are doing but to be controlled by God and to live a life that pleases God. And then in verse 4, he says, Let there be no silliness or filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting among you. And Paul is saying, start living out the life 
that you have been called to live. Live in the light. Stop deceiving yourselves with deceitful words and stop defeating yourself with deceitful actions. See your filthiness for what it is and from whom it comes. Start instead. Get rid of your unguarded speech where your defenses are lowered and actions bring pain. Put an end to speech that is out of bounds for God's people. Do away with the, the coarse joking, the off-color, off-color story, the sexual joke, the double entendre speech. It's interesting that even in the culture, Aristotle would say, well, the double entendre speech, that's just clever. That's just clever speech. But Paul says, no, it's not. His take is very different. The suggestive is wrong. The suggestive is sin. And what it does, it creates the atmosphere in which you will step out into behavior that is going to do you great harm. And let's not mistake, humor is a fabulous gift. It's a God gift. God, God, <laughs> I know it's hard to picture, but that God actually is a God of joy. He's a God that likes laughter. He, he is a God that is, you can say, loves humor. Otherwise, why do we laugh and enjoy and be lifted up by, by that? But be very careful. If you're the master of the quick retort or the funny quip, the amusing reply, the flippant comment, be very careful. Light speech often become, can become loose speech, and that loose speech, it quickly can turn into low speech. And we usually center much of that around the sexual. And God's, God's call, don't blemish, don't devalue, don't dirty. Rather, give thanks. Use your tongue to elevate. Use your tongue to bless. Use your tongue to treasure God's gift for what they are. And Paul concludes this section that we're looking at this morning with a significant warning so we understand how incompatible God's kingdom is to the world around that is characteristic of Satan's kingdom. For of this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person such as a person such person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God the immoral and the the impure the greedy having no place in the kingdom of God he's not saying listen you can you you had an immoral act you did something that was wrong you did something that you should never have done you'll never get into heaven he's not saying that but what he is saying is this if you still live and act according to a previous kingdom, that if you not had a kingdom identity change, a heart that's repented, a heart that is still living under the old master, then you said, there's no place in the kingdom of God if, if there hasn't been a heart transformation of being made new in Christ. They wouldn't want to be there anyway. They wouldn't fit there. They wouldn't be happy there. Again, Paul coming back, don't live as if your residence has been unchanged. Live as a new kingdom. There are other things I can say about the, the passage this morning, but, but I'm going to conclude with, with these. The first thing Paul would have us know and understand is this. If you're a Christian, live in a way that pleases God. Get rid of everything that you hang on to your life you're hanging on to that displeases Christ. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, I don't have to do this in my power. I'm given the, the power of Christ in me to overcome and claim victory. In the power of the Holy Spirit, follow Christ, imitate him, know his love for you, and believe. But there's a second place that we go with this, and that is well. If you are bowing to other gods, if you're habitually chasing sin, you need to take a close look at yourself. You may have walked down an aisle after a preacher spoke. You may have parroted some words someone asked you to say or, or nodded your head when someone walked you through something like the four spiritual laws. But the question is this. Have you truly come to the cross and fully acknowledged your sin and repented and accepted his forgiveness? Have you turned from your sin to follow Jesus? Because when you do, you are given the power of a new life by God's Spirit. And if you haven't done that, this morning, everything can change. His invitation to you is to come to Him and believe. And the Word of God is very true. His Word is truth. His promises are truth. His love is sure. Because we're told the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the gift of God that changed the life of someone like Nicky Cruz. His father was a satanic priest. His mother was a witch. And as a young boy, he tells the story of how many times his mother viciously beat him blackening his eye, breaking his nose, breaking his chin, breaking his ribs. On several occasions, locked up in a dark room for two or three days at a time without food and without water. A mother who would tell him that he was, he was never loved and she cursed the day he was born. His name, just the son of Satan. It's no surprise that Nikki emerged from this world filled with hate. It was a hate that would later would play out on the streets of New York as the leader and the warlord of New York's most vicious gang many years ago, who would battle other, other gangs as well as battle the police using knives and chains and sticks and guns killing and mugging and, and doing whatever act needed to be done. Whomever got in their way, the weaponry was the answer. In his own words, he said, he was a vicious animal in a vicious world who, without conscience, would do whatever was needed to rule in his jungle. He was completely unreachable. But his rule would be turned upside down by the words spoken by a skinny, out-of-his-depth country preacher by the name of David Wilkerson, who again and again would say to Nicky, even though he would, Nicky would slap him in his face, he'd spit in him, he would say, Nicky, Jesus loves you. 
And in one encounter of a nose-to-nose encounter where Nikki and David Wilkerson were together, Wilkerson said, I know you can kill me. I know you could cast, you could cut my body into a thousand pieces and scatter them into the street, but you need to know this. Every one of those pieces would still be saying to you, Nikki, Jesus loves you. Nikki would say that those words haunted him. But he said, there came a day when he saw everything as clearly as it needed to be seen that he was just a scared little boy looking for love. And hearing the words, Nikki, Jesus loves you. And he said on the day that he became converted, made new, it said as it was if Jesus took out his heart and he took it out of his body and put it over here, removed all the pain and took his heart and then put it back in his body and made, sewed him up and made him new. A story of amazing transformation of a man who only knew killing and death and hate and anger and satanic who would eventually take the message, Nikki, Ralph, Susan, Jesus loves you. And if Jesus could change, Jesus could change Nikki Cruz, he can change you, speaking that message to over 40 million people so that they would know Christ. And those words are the same words that Jesus would speak to you. His invitation to, to come to him and be made new. New in every way. Come to him and believe. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter the chains that think they'll never fall off. And Jesus said, if, if I can do what I did for Nikki Cruz and radically, totally change his life, then the power of God can do the same for you. As we've done on several other times, if if you've never come to Christ, you don't know what that looks like, how that might come into place for you, just take a look at the website where it says uh, mralliance.ca and how I can become a child of God that you too may step into the new life that God would have you and set you free. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you give great gifts. You've given us the great gift of new life in you. You've given us the great gift of sexual freedom and sexual love that is to be used in a context of abiding by your truth and living as you call. Lord, I pray that people will see that what it means to follow and to know that this God is the God designer who loves. And Lord, I pray that you will silence and make empty the voice of the sexual deceiver, the deceiver of all things, fall into what it truly is, empty and can't meet any sense of filling us. But thank you, the blood of Christ, you do. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.